Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through Psalm 119. Uh, today we're looking at verses 137 through 144. As we work our way through these verses, we're remembering that the psalmist wrote this psalm in the midst of a culture that was hostile toward him uh, because it was hostile toward his faith. That's an important part of the context for all these stanzas, including the one that we're looking at this morning. And as usual, in, in this stanza, the psalmist deals with those challenges that he's facing by taking him to the Lord in prayer and by focusing on the word of God. This particular stanza gives us a great deal of focus on God's righteousness. The Hebrew letter, as you know, each one of these stanzas are based on a particular, in, in order, on based on the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And then each line in the stanza in Hebrew begins with that particular Hebrew letter. Well, we don't see that in English, but this 18th stanza is based on the Hebrew letter said hey. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I took Hebrew, but it was a long time ago. And that is the first letter in the word for righteous. So the psalmist takes that as an opportunity to focus on righteousness in this stanza. The word righteous, righteousness, upright, shows up six times in these eight verses. So let's read Psalm 119, verse 137 to 144. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. So you can probably see the theme of righteousness that worked its way through there. But we also see here, especially in the final uh, five, six verses, the psalmist is expressing several things that he's struggling with. And in the context of those struggles, he talks about how the Lord came to his aid. We're going to be looking at uh, three different, uh, three main ideas in this stanza. First, we're going to consider how helpful it is to Christians to know that God is righteous. Second, we're going to see how believers are helped by knowing that all God does is righteous. And third, we're going to see how believers can trust their righteous God to see them through difficult trials. So first main point is this. Believers are helped by knowing for sure that God is righteous. Verse 137, the psalmist begins very simply by saying, Righteous are you, O Lord. One of the most important aspects of prayer is praise. And so this is, a, this is a word of praise to God for his righteousness. We honor the Lord, and, and there's praise is, is an important part of prayer. Jesus taught us that. He starts off with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I mean, there's, may your name be hallowed. We speak of your name in that way. And as we continue to speak of God's attributes in prayer and praise, um, we grow more and more in our understanding and appreciation of the, of the greatness of who he is. And, of course, just using the word Lord, righteous are you, O Lord, that in itself is an, is an expression of praise, just that word, 
The word Lord is the word there for Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. It means I am who I am. So it speaks of God as being the self-existent, sovereign Lord over all. He is the great I am, and all believers who are believers, all those who have a faith in Christ, are in covenant with the great I am. Well, righteousness is a part of who God is. There's a quote on your outline from Brian Borgman, and this was helpful to me in trying to think about what this means. He said this, Righteousness is God's perfect moral conformity to his own intrinsic moral nature, which compels him to always uphold the worth of his glory and to act for his glory. God is righteous in his being. God is righteous in his deeds. God's righteousness is both who he is and what he does. So God's very nature is righteous. Whenever the standards of right and wrong that are revealed in the scripture, whenever God was revealing those standards, he didn't have to sit and ponder for a while, I wonder what I'm going to make right and what I'm going to make wrong. I wonder what would be a good order of moral standards. He didn't have to think about that. These aren't just arbitrary. Ten Commandments are not arbitrary standards. They are things that are expressive of the righteous nature of God. It's who he is, fundamental to who he is. So, and the fact, and God's righteousness then is his perfect conformity to that intrinsic moral nature he has. And that's a good thing. That's a glorious thing for us. That's greatly encouraging for us to believe because this is our God. He is our God. We are his people. So since that is true as far as righteousness is, is innate, innate to him, that's his moral nature, then he is consistent. God does not change. The, he's always going to act in accordance with his own glory. That's what he's going to do. Our God, his ideas, his standards, what is right and wrong, do not go up and down. They don't vary according to what's going on in the culture. It's the same. It's always the same because he is righteous. Now, the psalmist then moves from the idea of him being righteous in his being to a proclamation that kind of helps us to see this next point, and that is number two. Believers are helped by knowing that God is righteous in all that he does. So he's, not, so he's righteous in who he is, therefore he's also righteous in what he does. Look again at verse 137. He says, righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. So when it speaks of God's judgments here, it could be saying that his rules are righteous. It could also be saying his rulings are just. Both those things are true, but when you start speaking of God's rulings being just, then you're moving into the area of his work of providence. So I want to take a few minutes to think about that. According to the Baptist Catechism, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So since God is righteous in his being and in his deeds, then believers can trust him no matter what their circumstances might be. 
And the psalmist deals with some pretty difficult circumstances near the end of the psalm. But he's seeing God's righteous hand, seeing him through those things all the way through. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about God's providence on your outline. The doctrine of providence is based on the fact that God alone has the right as well as the qualifications to govern the world. The right and the qualifications to govern the world. The world is not governed by blind fortune. It's governed by our righteous God. Now, I'm going to use several thoughts here that Stephen Charnock gives in his book on divine providence to help us think about this. As you know, and you may have struggled with this yourself, some people are very uncomfortable with the idea that the triune God is the one who governs the world. That's not a happy thought for a lot of people. They would rather things be in the hand of chance. That's not a happy thought for me. But God is the only one who has the indisputable right to govern the world. He's the creator of the world and all things in it. The very fact that he's the creator of the world means that he's the sovereign ruler of his creation. He's the one who brought all creatures into existence. Therefore, he has the sole right to establish their laws, to determine what their station in life will be, to determine the number of days they will live on the earth. So God has the indisputable right to govern the world because he's the creator of the world. He's also the only one who has the necessary qualifications to govern. Let me mention four. First, because he's all-powerful. There's only one person who is all-powerful. So the one who has the power to create the world is also the one who has the power to sustain the world that he's created. So his first qualification is all-powerful. Second qualification, only God is perfectly holy and righteous. So this is where righteousness comes in. Being all-powerful is absolutely needed if you're going to govern the world. But if the one who is all-powerful is not holy, is not righteous, that's terrifying. Because he can do anything. And if he's not a good God, if he's not a righteous God, that's terrifying. But he is all-powerful, and he is perfectly holy and righteous. And he's the only one who fits that. Like we said, he's righteous at the core of his being, so he can be trusted to do what is right. A third qualification is only God is all-knowing. He has infinite, perfect, and complete knowledge of everything. For example, there's nothing in the realm of science, math, music, biology, government, language, physics, anything related to computers, technology, human body. He has perfect, full knowledge of all of that. He also knows all that has been in detail. He knows all that is taking place now in detail. He knows all that will take place in the future in detail. He also knows everything about every single person's heart. 
He doesn't just know your details like your social security number and your driver's license and your address, things like that. He knows what you're thinking. He knows every purpose. He knows every motive you have ever had. He knows every temptation you've ever dealt with. He knows every good thing you've ever done. He knows it all. There is nothing he doesn't know. He has perfect and absolute knowledge. If you're going to govern the world, that's really helpful. Fourth, God is, is, per, is the only one who is perfect in patience. Infinite patience is necessary to preserve and govern a world that is under the curse of sin. So in addition to being perfectly holy and righteous, he's also patient and slow to anger. If not, the world would have been destroyed a long time ago. So all this is why the psalmist can say that the judgments of the sovereign Lord are always upright. His righteous providence rules over all. I was reminded of these truths in a very, it was very profound to me. I was out walking yesterday morning. It was just after we had several rainstorms, but I had very first rainstorms, at least I was awake enough to know it happened, passed. And so I was walking on Philadelphia Avenue, rain just finished, and I noticed, I mean, just a beautiful rainbow. And there weren't trees around where I was, and I could see it completely from end to end. And it's like the more I walked, the more clear and precise all the colors got. And pretty soon it was a double rainbow. I mean, it's, it's one of the most beautiful rainbows I've ever seen in my life. And it was kind of hard to keep walking because I kept trying to look to the light, left and making sure I'm not stepping in something. I shouldn't because there's all kinds of goose poop where I walk there. But, so I make sure I want to step in that stuff. But, man, it was amazing. And I was thinking immediately of these verse, of this verse. Because the rainbow is a reminder that God is righteous. He judged the world for its sin with a worldwide flood in the days of Noah. The rainbow is also a reminder that he governs the world. And it's God's promise that he will never again destroy the world by water. And the rainbow is a covenant sign related to that. So in the rainbow, we see God's power. We see his perfect righteousness. We see his full knowledge of all things. And we also see the fact that he's patient and slow to anger. He's faithful to keep his word because he is righteous. Now, there's one more thing about God's righteous providence that we need to understand. And it has everything to do with the rest of this stanza and has everything to do with you and me. God rules all things for the benefit of his church. He rules all things for the benefit of his church. Last week in our TRI class, we noted as we were studying Jonah, Jonah made the statement in his prayer, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And one thing we said, and I've heard multiple people say this over the years, that that simple statement is the theme of the whole Bible. Salvation is of the Lord. I mean, think about it. The Bible speaks of the promise of sin. In other words, there's a need for salvation. It speaks of the problem of sin. It speaks of the fact that sin can only be atoned for by a blood sacrifice. It speaks of Jesus Christ as the one who was promised, the one who came, the one who is fully God, fully man, 
righteous in his being, righteous in all of his deeds. And as God, Jesus Christ, and as the Savior, Jesus Christ paid for our sins by his bloody death on the cross. By his resurrection, salvation was fully accomplished. The Holy Spirit applies this salvation in the lives of sinful people to bring them to repentance and faith. And the Bible, that's the theme of the Bible. As you think through the Bible, that is the core, and everything in the Bible relates to that in some way, from some angle. So since that's true, those people who receive that salvation, of which is, which is the Bible's theme, that's his church. And the Bible actually speaks of the church being his treasured possession in the earth. That's not something to be proud of. That's something to say, God, you are so merciful and gracious for a believer like me to be wanted to be your treasure. But we know, the scripture tells us, he is actively causing all things to work together for good, not in general. All things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's providence that's what he's doing charnock summed up this in this one sentence all the designs of providence are ultimately for the good of the church ultimately they are so if you're a christian that should be immensely encouraging to you all the judgments of your lord are upright so we can say praise god I don't understand everything that goes on. I don't know why everything happens the way it does. There's things I don't like that's going on. But my Lord is righteous. He is all his deeds are righteous, and I can trust him. Well, the psalmist's declaration about God's righteousness is not only applicable to the doctrine of providence, but it also is applicable to the scriptures. You know the writer of this is going to bring the Bible in, the scriptures in, because this, this is he, what he's holding on so tightly to in, the, in his circumstances. So our next point is, since God is righteous, his word can be fully trusted. It can be fully trusted. This is alluded to in verse 137, but let me pick up in verse 138. He says, you have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. So once again, the psalmist talks about the complete trustworthiness of Scripture. If God has commanded his testimonies, which is an aspect of his Scripture, if he's commanded his testimonies in righteousness, then they can be absolutely trusted. The word of God rests on the perfect righteousness of God. He's exceedingly faithful to his word. Anything that God is exceedingly faithful toward is something you can put your confidence in. Beginning in verse 139, the psalmist begins to lament, uh, to some degree, about circumstances he's in by God's providence and things that he's dealing with. Well, in the midst of this series of laments, three of them in particular that we'll look at in a moment, he's showing how he is resting on the word of God. And, each of the time, and every time he does that, he brings out a particular characteristic of the scripture to help us see why the word of God can be trusted. So look at verse 140. He says, your word is very pure. Your word is very pure. 
Now, the word for pure here speaks of something that has been tested or refined. Matter of fact, that might be how your version translates it, uh, tested or refined. It's without any impurities, so it is pure. So the scriptures can be fully trusted for several reasons. One, the word of God is thoroughly tested and proven. It's tested and proven. The ESV says your promises are well tried. They are well tried. Down through the centuries, people have believed the word of God and found it to be true. They've been, this has been proven. It's been tried. Noah, for example, believed that what God said, so he built an ark. He preached repentance and faith to people. The word of God was proven correct when the flood came. Abraham and Sarah believed the promise of God for a son, even though they were both well past childbearing years. They waited for 25 years, but the word of God was proven to be correct. David believed God that he would be king. He was promised that, and he believed it. He endured a lot of hostility at the hand of Saul, but the word of God was proven to be correct. He did become king. When we get to the New Testament, we see saints like Anna and Simeon who were holding fast to these promises of the Messiah that were hundreds and in some cases even thousands of years old that they were holding to, and so they were rewarded by being able to see the baby Jesus in the temple. The word of God was proven. It was correct. It's been thoroughly tested. You have examples in your life about how God has kept his promises. You have examples of how he's given you the strength you need to get through hard times. You have examples of how he's given you wisdom in really some difficult decisions that have to be made. You have examples of prayers that have been answered. There are Christians that you know who have those same kind of testimonies. Their prayers have been answered. They've been given strength. You've see, you, have, you yourself have multiple examples of the scripture being tried and proven in your life and in lives of people around you that you have seen that happen as well. So since God is righteous, his word can be trusted. It's been thoroughly tested and proven to be true. Verse 142, it says this, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. And then down in verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. So everlasting and forever. So next, second, the scriptures can be trusted because the word of God is everlastingly righteous. It's everlastingly righteous. Since God is righteous, his word of righteousness does not fluctuate with the times. For example, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, that the work of the law has been written on the heart, even of those who had never heard of the Ten Commandments. That work of the law written on the hearts goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and everyone since. That work of the law that's written on the hearts, we might call it the conscience. Of course, then, the Ten Commandments were specifically revealed through Moses to the, uh, the Jewish people, that same law. Those Ten Commandments are still the standard of what is morally right and wrong because his testimonies are righteous forever. They continue. Next, we see in verse 142, it says, Your law is truth. Your law is truth. Scriptures can be fully trusted 
because, number three, the word of God is truth. There are fragments of truth that, we can, that can be found in other places, for sure. There are biblical principles that people can know on some level because of that work of the law that's written on the heart of, a, of every person. But to find the truth that is pure and undefiled, you have to go to the scriptures. It's the scriptures that are inspired by God who is fully righteous in his being and in his deeds. So, because God is righteous, his word can be fully trusted. I mean, that is a help, a great help to know that. And the psalmist is, ex is an example of one who would always come back to that, no matter what was going on in his life. He was always coming back to what he knew he could count on, what he knew he could trust. And we see that happening, especially in this third point, because we're going to see how knowing that God is righteous in his being and in his deeds makes a difference for us. So especially in verses 139 through 144, all this seems to kind of come together for the psalmist as he thinks through some really difficult things he's having to deal with. So our third main point is this. Believers are helped in the difficult trials that God providentially brings into their life. They trust in their righteous God through faith in his righteous word. The psalmist gets discouraged like we all do. He gets knocked down in his faith sometimes. He gets overwhelmed. But he always takes his struggles to the Lord. And since he has implicit trust in the scriptures, the Lord always helps him. Look at verse 139. He says, my zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Zeal it speaks of something that's just, it's very intense feelings. And it can be intense towards something that's really good, like being zealous for the Lord is a good expression, is a good intensity of feeling. But people can be also zealous for things that are not good, uh, even engulfed in things like some people are zealous in their anger and their jealousy and their bitterness. Well, that's, the, that's a wrong angle for zeal to go in. Well, the psalmist here has some really intense kind of feelings, and it's because of those he describes as his adversaries. They have worn him out. He's very upset. He's distraught at what he has seen in them. So here in point A, we see that believers can be discouraged because their adversaries forget God's word, forget God's word, or disregard God's word. Now, it's important to notice here, the people that the psalmist is talking about, are he's not talking about people who have never known God's word. These are people who have access to God's word. It's something they have had, but they're disregarding it, or they've forgotten it. They've put it aside. They've read the scriptures. They've learned about them. They've even honored them to some degree. But in God's providence, these people have now become adversaries. They've rejected the word of God. They could put God's word aside so they can justify activities they want to do that they know the word of God would frown on and say don't do it we think of David as a possibility of someone who wrote this 
David had to deal with this from Saul and all those who were kind of doing Saul's bidding because Saul let his hatred, his bitterness, and his jealousy of David drive him to ignore God's commandment, which says, you shall not murder, because he was intent on killing David. This is somebody who knew the scripture and would know better. But his sinful zeal was leading him to forget the word. Daniel's another possibility of someone who could have written this. He had to deal with this in Babylon because a large percentage of the Jews who were in exile there where, when Daniel was, they put the scriptures behind them. They disregarded the scriptures so they could fit in better in an idolatrous nation, a pagan nation. So they ignored God's command, you shall have no other gods before me. Having people who claim to be believers lead the way in casting doubt on the scriptures is very frustrating. You have seen people do this, I'm sure, unfortunately. It's actually quite popular in our day, but it's not just our day. This is just kind of something that takes place in history. It took place in the psalmist day, too, to claim the name Christian, but actually they disregard his words. And... Uh, I admit that I struggle with this same kind of misplaced zeal myself, like, I, like it seems like the psalmist did. It makes me really upset, I have to admit, when I see Christians take positions on things that are clearly in conflict with the Word of God, and then to make it worse when they try to convince other people to do the same thing they're doing. Now, there's a place for righteous anger. There really is. But I can easily be moved to be sinfully obsessed with adversaries who were formerly allies who have purposely departed from God's word. So I understand this. Maybe you do too. Well, how did the psalmist deal with this? Well, look again at that point. Believers can be discouraged because their adversaries forget God's word, but they remember that God's word has proven to be trustworthy, so they love it. So after this psalmist talks about his zeal that went too far in the wrong direction, he says this in verse 140, your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. So the psalmist is kind of reeling himself back in. He's reeling himself back into a more godly frame of thinking by refocusing himself on God's word. I mean, there's definitely a place for considering how other people have gotten off track. I mean, there's examples of that in Scripture. I think of Paul's letter to the Galatians, which really begins, and there's, there's rebuke all through that letter because how they were straying from the gospel. So there's times where that needs to be done. But before we get carried away with anger, indignation, frustration at the words of other people, we need to refocus on God's words. It is his words that are the pure words. It is his words that have been refined. It is his words that have, proved, have stood the test of time and have been proven. So when you feel yourself getting frustrated with what professed believers are saying, make sure you're putting your primary focus on what God is saying in his word. Well, then we see the psalmist had to deal with another thing that God, again, in his good providence, brought into his life 
Verse 141, he says, I'm small and despised. I don't think he's talking about his physical stature. I think it's the idea that he's young and despised. He's young and insignificant, therefore, in the eyes of many people. In fact, he's, you could even say he was being hated by many people. So we see from this point B, believers can be discouraged because they are regarded with contempt. David was a young boy who was regarded with contempt by Saul and those who allied themselves with Saul. Daniel was a young man when he was first taken to Babylon. And though he was being trained to serve in the king's court, he would certainly be at the bottom of the totem pole because he was young and also because he was a committed follower of the one true God, the God of Israel. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In God's providence, there will always be people who regard believers with contempt. When we stand firm for what is right, when we stand firm for the biblical gospel, there are going to be people who do not like that. They may despise us, they may reject us, and that hurts. You know it does. The psalmist was dealing with that himself, where the righteous Lord worked in his heart to enable him to endure. So look at verses 141 to 142. He says, I'm small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. So we'll look again at verse at point B. Believers can be discouraged because they're regarded with contempt, but they do not forget the scriptures, remembering that his righteousness is not temporary. It's not temporary, but everlasting. It's not the precepts of the culture that are going to last in the long run. It's the precepts of God. Don't let the slogans, the politically correct ideas of the culture tell you what is right and wrong. They will likely change within a decade or two. Instead, give your attention to the precepts of God. His righteousness is everlasting. What is right according to the Lord doesn't change. It's his law that is truth. We don't live by lies. We live by what is true. And this everlasting righteousness has another application, too. I mean, in order to be right with God, a person has to be righteous before God, right according to his laws. Well, it's only by faith in Jesus Christ that a person can be righteous before God. He fully obeyed those everlasting laws on behalf of sinners. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are given that everlasting righteousness as a gift. The culture may cancel you because of your opinion and it, because it doesn't match up with theirs, but you and I are fully received by the righteous Lord in Christ, and that will never change. So the psalmist has dealt with two difficult trials that the Lord has providentially brought into his life. And he keeps going to the scriptures to give him the truth he needs to actually address these. Well, now we see a third challenge in verse 143. He says, trouble and anguish have come upon me. 
The idea of trouble speaks of outward circumstances that are really hard. The word for anguish speaks of internal turmoil of heart and mind. So here we see in our next point that believers can be discouraged because of outward trouble and inward turmoil. In 2 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul talked about fighting without and fears within. Same idea here. It doesn't matter how mature you are in your faith. You will likely have times of discouragement because of things that God in his providence has brought into your life. We all know that's true. But the psalmist knows what the prescription is to his trouble and his anguish. Verse 143 to 144. Trouble and anguish have come upon me. Yet your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. So he reminds himself in prayer of what a blessing the word of God is to him. So look again at point C. Believers can be discouraged because of outward trouble and inward turmoil, but they delight in God's commandments and trust him for further understanding for their life. Once again, the fact that God's testimonies in his word are forever righteous puts everything in our current situation in focus. We remind ourselves of the glory of the word of God. We know that the, that the greater our understanding is of his word, the better prepared we are going to be to live life. He says, give me understanding, then I may live. It will affect how I live. Because in the midst of great turmoil, what you need is solid truth that you can depend on. And the more we understand that truth, the more we see how it applies to our lives, the greater our joy will be because he speaks of his delight. Solid truth brings solid joy. We'll find ourselves delighting in the commandments of God while the culture is trying to keep pace with the next fad. Our God is righteous in his being. He is righteous in his deeds. We can trust his providential designs for our life. We can trust his righteous word. His word is truth. Lord, give us understanding that we may live. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder of, what, of a lot of these things that we already know. We're reminded that you are righteous. You are our righteous God. And all that you do, you do in righteousness. So, Lord, I thank you that we can trust you. Every one of us in here have things that we look at in our life and we think, this has been really hard to deal with. It was hard. Maybe it's hard now. Maybe as far as we see in the future, it's going to continue to be hard. Sometimes it's the outward circumstances. Sometimes it's the inward turmoil that just is always there. Lord, we're not different than the psalmist. He dealt with the same kind of things, not the exact same circumstances, but things that were hard. Lord, I ask that you would help us. Help us to be able to reason through these things in prayer with you to remind ourselves of the things that are right that are true especially the fact that you are our righteous God that your word is always what we can trust and stand firm on Lord help us help us to, to make some practical applications of these in our own life we need your help and we thank you that you are so willing 
to help us. And just the fact that things like this are in your word shows your willingness to help us. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, because this is the key, as this person has a, this psalmist has a real relationship with the Lord, if you don't have that, you're not going to be able to reason like he was able to reason. I would invite you to put your faith in Christ. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I haven't measured up to what you've called me to do as my creator. But Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I want to receive him as my savior. I want to commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that, you can make a note on your tear-off from your bulletin, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the Internet. It's in Christ's name we pray.